on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. The disciples went back to their homes. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Pray with me. Um, Father, uh, we are thankful to gather today and to, uh, toward the end of the Gospel of John, um, really at its climax, uh, to see and to savor and to treasure uh, Jesus' resurrection. Uh, we pray that you would make the truth of the resurrection um, felt by us, um, that we would think rightly about it, um, but more importantly, Lord, that you would grow our faith, that our faith would be in the resurrected Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So empty, that's the name of the sermon, empty. Uh, life is oftentimes empty of life, it would seem. Uh, my devotion is dry, empty. My job is dreadful, empty. My health is abysmal, empty. My friendships seem shallow, empty. My community group is shrinking, empty. My coworkers just care about the job and nothing else, empty. My prayer life is shriveled up, empty. My grandparents and parents are dying, empty. My entertainment isn't making me happy, empty. I look around at the chairs of the church and compared to before, empty. Many trusted friends, members, disciples have left me, empty. The Messiah I had been following for years was just betrayed by one of us, empty. The Christ was arrested, empty. He was falsely accused and condemned, empty. He was beaten, mocked, and crowned with a crown of thorns, empty. He was crucified, empty. He was dead, wrapped, and buried, empty. We've all felt emptiness before in our lives. Some of us have felt it more or felt it in different ways than others of us. Empty is the lack of something, and yet it feels more like a monstrous dragon that eats away at something, that feasts on something. What does this dragon eat? It eats hope. It kills our hope. We've gone through hardships as a church. We've gone through hardships as individuals. And hope doesn't seem to be of high supply at Remedy Church. 
Um, I've had more conversations with you, the members, than ever before about the state of the church, and many of these conversations end something like this. Well, regardless, I'm going down with the ship if it goes down. That's how the conversations have kind of ended, and um, that you know, the, it warms my heart to know about the commitment level of the members. But we need something more than commitment. Something more than commitment is necessary for our walks with Christ. And I'm worried that this dreadful dragon is clearing us out of that thing that is necessary. And that is hope. Hope in Jesus Christ. Hope in a resurrected Lord. Faith, a growing, ever healthy, vibrant faith in Jesus. We'll actually see some of the disciples, we'll see with some of the disciples, that there was only one person in Jesus' tomb, and his name was empty. The tomb was empty. Emptiness was laid up in that same tomb buried, dead, where Christ once was. The empty tomb is a silver bullet to combat our hearts that may or may not be besieged with emptiness. And our text today is a simple narrative and it builds in stages. Stage one, Mary sees a rolled away stone. Stage two, John sees the linen cloths from afar. Stage three, Peter goes in and sees the linen cloths and a face cloth from close. And stage five, finally, John follows Peter's example and goes in and sees those same cloths with one minor exception. He believes. So with each phase, you get closer and closer to the emptiness of the tomb. And with each phase, you get closer and closer to faith in the resurrected Christ. There's two repeated themes that are going to help us to get focus and kind of give the rhythm or the beat of the text, if you will. First, it's a frantic rhythm. It's frantically paced. You'll see this in the word went. It's used 11 times in Greek, and then there's another word, running, used three more times in Greek. So 14 times this idea of going and coming and running around. It's frantic. It's always moving. So look with me, because, you know, that word went is translated into different English words. Just take your, your finger and kind of go across the verses. Starting at verse 1, you'll find came. Verse 2, ran. Verse 2 again went. Verse 3, went and were going. Verse 4, running, outran, reached. Verse 5, go in. Verse 6, came and went into. Verse 8, reached and went in. Verse 10, went back. So much movement is going on in our text today, and that's all from two words the word for went and the word for run. It builds an ever-moving, frantic pace. You can almost taste the bewilderment, the confusion, and the surprise of the disciples as they're just quite literally running around like chickens with their heads cut off is what it kind of seems like at times. Now, the second repeated word gives us the focus of the text, and this is the word tomb. Tomb is used seven times, twice in verse 1 and once in verses 2 Three, four, six, eight. Kind of seeing a pattern. Tomb, 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 tomb. 
all throughout. So they're running around, and it's all centered around. This movement is all centered around the tomb. Now, the franctus, this franctus, uh, sorry, franticness, I can say that, is centered around the tomb, and this makes sense given the context, but John is actually going to correct us. At the end, he's going to be like, the tomb's good. The empty tomb, it's good. It's not best. It's not the best thing for your faith. And John's going to pastorally correct us at the end. So today, we'll see John has three requests for us. The first one, that we would feel the hope of the empty tomb. The second one, that we would see the glory of Jesus' resurrection. And then the third one, that we would ground our faith in something even more than those two things. Through pretty much the whole text, one through eight, that we need to feel the hope of the empty tomb. John writes this in one through eight. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. Uh, end quote. So again, we kind of mentioned that our text today has progressions, it has stages. It's like a, a stare suffering from amnesia, or they, they forgot some memory, and then through the movie, like you have a flashback, and it's their memory, and it's like 10 minutes of it, and then it just cuts off, and they're like, no, I need to know more. And then like 20 minutes into the movie, they have another flashback, and it's a little bit more of the memory this time. And then finally, by the end of the movie, the whole memory flashback comes, and everything just comes together as a brilliant written story, right? That's what our text has. It has memory pieces, different pieces of information about the tomb that progress as we go. And each time there's more development. Now, this is actually centering around a word that is also rep repeated. Each of these memory pieces in John 20 are marked off by the word Saul, S-A-W. You'll see Saul a number of times, four times, and each time, even though in English it's Saul, there's actually three different words behind Saul. Okay, and so I'm going to go into that briefly before we actually look at the memory pieces. Verse 1 and 5 has the word Saul. The word behind this is used 15 other times in the Gospel of John. Primarily it is used in John 9. That is Jesus' healing of the man who was blind from birth. And if you read John 9, the whole passage is kind of, yes, it's a real guy who's blind getting healed, but it also stands for the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees. And so that word saw is here used in verse 1 and 5. In verse 6, we see another use of the word saw. This word is used 23 times, and it mainly pops up in John 16, 16 through 24, 
And this is literally where Jesus is saying to his disciples, for a little while, you will no longer see me. I will then come back. You will see me. Your sorrow will turn to joy. Sounds familiar to our passage, right? They haven't seen him. He's dead. He's laid up in the tomb. Now he's completely gone. And in a little while, they'll see him and their joy will be complete. All right, there's one more saw. Look at verse 8. Saw. This one doesn't really, this, the word behind this one doesn't really have a chapter focus in John. But oftentimes, this word is used of Jesus seeing other people in John. So there's a little bit of background. So let's look at the information pieces. Let's look at the flashback here. All right, information piece one, verse one through two. In verse one, Mary, on the first day of the week, goes to the tomb and saw the stone rolled away. Two quick notes here. All four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record the phrase on the first day of the week in regards to Jesus's resurrection. That's significant. Why? Because it is one of the better arguments for the truth of the resurrection. That Jews who celebrated the Sabbath and the Holy Day on Saturday, who were following this Messiah Jesus, all of a sudden, gradually, but pretty suddenly, switched worship day from Saturday onto Sunday. And that by even the end of the recorded New Testament, by the time the New Testament is being recorded, they are already calling Sunday the Lord's Day, Revelation 1.10. This, uh, this phrase, every, you know, this is where we get our phrase if you've ever heard it. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday because the gathering day itself on Sunday unconsciously witnesses to the resurrection and the truthfulness of it because it happened Sundays, a Sunday ages ago. Our second, well, I, let me actually give a quote here. This is Augustine, our ancient brother. He says this of the first day of the week. The first of the week is what Christian practice now calls the Lord's Day because of the resurrection of the Lord. That's kind of the summary of that. So second, the second thing that Mary saw here, she saw the stone rolled away, and there's a specific thing that we need to think of here. These stones are really heavy. It would have taken several men to move the stone. And it seems at this stage, Mary seems to be thinking someone has stolen the Lord's body. Some men have come and rolled the stone away and have grave robbed the body, right? She says this, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. He is still Lord to Mary, even in his death. Her, she still is faithful, but her faith is in a dead savior from her perspective. So again, she just sees the stone rolled away. That's information piece number one. Then we get a little bit more of the flashback, right? Information piece number two. John and Peter have a foot race after Mary comes to them. They literally are racing each other. And in this case, Peter eats John's dust because running is a young man's game. That's what happens here. Peter's a little bit older than John, and he lost. John arrives to the tomb first, and he bends down low to look into the entrance of the tomb. He's still outside of it, and he saw linen cloths. Now, these dugout tombs, they, they, their doors were usually like this. And so you had to like kind of get low to go into the tomb, right? And in a way, it's still that way today. If you want to see the evidence for the resurrection, you have to have a humble 
and low heart. You have to bend down low in order to enter into the grave of Christ and see its emptiness. So John, he doesn't want to go in. He just looks, he sees the linen cloths, and that's it. Then we get a little bit more information. Peter, old man Peter, information number three, he arrives on the scene, but unlike John stopping at the mouth of the tomb, he bends down low and he goes right in. And that's Peter, right? He's brash, he's bold, he's first. He goes in and he enters into the tomb and he saw linen cloths lying about and a face cloth that had been over Jesus's head folded up in a place by itself. And at this point in the story, we're thinking, it's a little odd if some tomb robbers came here, unwrapped the body of a lot of the valuable things that would have been included, the spices and the wrappings would have been the most valuable part of this. They unwrap the body and steal just the body and leave all the goods, right? That's, and, you know, that'd be a little weird. It's kind of like a bank robber who goes in, robs a bank, has the money in his hand, puts it down to open the door for a lady to come in and then walks out without the money, right? It makes no sense. And so here we're starting to see this little narrative of Mary, of her thoughts of a tomb robber, it's starting to, it's starting to dissipate. It would be odd for them to do that. And even if they did do that, why did they fold the face cloth and put it to the side, right? It's just a little, it's a little odd at this point. All right, so now we go to our final stage. Information piece number four. John, a young man encouraged by an old man's example, follows Peter into the tomb. And he sees the same thing. He saw presumably the same thing believed. John, based on all the information, concludes that the tomb is empty because the Savior, Jesus Christ, is resurrected. He believes and is filled with hope by the evidence of the empty tomb, and John wants us also to look at the empty tomb and be filled with hope and believe in the resurrected Lord. Now, just a side comment. The empty tomb, the argument for the empty tomb, is still one of the best historical evidences put into this, into like scholarly debates about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There has not been, to my knowledge, any argument that has satisfactorily debunked this idea that there are witnesses to an empty tomb. There's no historical evidence to circumvent the empty tomb. However, there's something else that's going on here. Peter saw the linen cloths, and it doesn't make any mark about his belief. What caused John to believe? Was it the emptiness of the tomb, or was it something else? The glory of Jesus's resurrection. See the glory of Jesus's resurrection. This is verse, verses 4 through 8 is where we're taking this. John writes this. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came in following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and he believed. And so our question here that we're seeking an answer for is what caused John to believe? 
Did he just see the linen cloths and the folded up face cloth and surmise, my Lord has been resurrected, I believe. Is that what happened? Yes and no. Yes and no. There are kind of two interpretations for this passage. And I am a fan of the latter one, the second one that we're going to talk about, though the second one also includes the first one. All right, the first interpretation is this. John sees the linen cloths. He's li they're lying around. The face cloth is folded up on its side. He kind of concludes, this hasn't been robbed. Jesus has been resurrected. He believes that Jesus has been resurrected, that he unwrapped himself of the linen cloths. He took off the face cloth, rolled it up, put it off to the side, and that this is evidence enough for John to say, Jesus is alive. That's the first kind of interpretation, that this is not a theft of a body, but rather a body thefting death itself, that Jesus has resurrected and has walked out of that tomb of death. Now, the second interpretation adds an element beyond the first. It has to at least mean what I just said, but it can mean more. And the second interpretation gives a little bit more. This interpretation states that the linen cloths were laid about about where Jesus' body was when he was laid down, and that Jesus' body, wrapped in a face cloth, goes through the linen cloths, takes off the face cloth, rolls it up, puts it off to the side. That Jesus' body supernaturally passes through the cloth, and then he takes off the final thing on his face, and he puts it to the side. Now, there's two main reasons to believe this. There's two textual reasons that we could kind of come to this conclusion. But again, I'll be the first to admit, it's not definitive, but I think it's right. So the first evidence is this. This word face cloth is only used in one other place in John, and it's another resurrection story, John 11. Jesus resurrects Lazarus four days after he died. John is there, and he sees it. Lazarus comes stumbling out of the tomb something like a mummy, and Jesus literally says, unbind him and let him go. Obviously, that's more than what we would think, right? It literally, take the cloths off of him, but there's more there, right? Unbind him. Death has no claim. I am Lord, right? Jesus saying that. So John, remembering this, that Lazarus literally had help sent by Christ to unwrap him of his grave clothes. John now looks at these grave clothes lying down and saying, well, Jesus had no help. What happened here? Jesus supernaturally goes, it's a tight unit. It has themes. It's not just, it doesn't just stop at verse 10. One of these themes is seeing and believing versus not seeing and believing. And we get this kind of culminated in Thomas's story where he gets to touch his wounds and he finally says he believes, and then Jesus is like, do you now believe that you've seen? Blessed are those who haven't seen and believe, right? So there's, there's a kind of tight unit here. And in John 20, verse 19, Jesus, and you can look, Jesus seemingly passes through walls and appears in a locked room and starts talking to the disciples. And so again, those are kind of the two textual pieces of evidence here. We also see Jesus' body seemingly pass through walls in John 20, 19, again, to show him his resurrected body, and it attaches to the seeing is believing theme of John 20. 
So on this interpretation, Carson, D.A. Carson writes this, Jesus' resurrection body apparently passed through his grave clothes, spices and all, in much the same way that he later appeared in the locked room. Bruce Milne adds to this, unlike Lazarus, Jesus did not have to be freed from his grave clothes. He left them behind as he moved to a new order of existence. That's pretty strong. So this interpretation leads us to recognize that John didn't just see an empty tomb, but he saw evidence that Jesus had been resurrected and glorified. And that's what sparked his faith. That's what sparked him to believe. Lazarus was resurrected normally. He grew older, he grew weaker, still as time passed, and eventually he died again. Jesus' resurrection is unique. It's different. John Stott gives a helpful analogy of a, a butterfly, right, coming out of the cocoon. And Justin Rio uh, <laughs> gave me this little piece of information that the caterpillar inside the cocoon releases acids that then break down its body, and it reforms a completely new body. So it's not just like, Oh, it transforms. I mean, it destroys and then it transforms. And in a very less gross way, right? Jesus' resurrection body was not merely his old body with breath in it. When Jesus was raised, the new creation and new world order began. His body was a glorified body. How many of you know Crown with Many Crowns? Raise your hand if you know the, the hymn, right? We're going to sing it, but we're going to do crown him the Lord of love. That's the verse. I think it's verse three. You guys ready? Everybody ready? All right. Crown him the Lord of love. Behold his hands inside. Those wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified. No angel in the sky can fully bear that sight and mystery so bright. What was that sight? The sight of his glorified, scarred body. And this takes our hope a step further than just an empty tomb, right? We don't just have the hope of we will have life after death. We have the hope that we will have glorified life after death. Paul picks up on this theme. 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about the resurrection the whole time. And toward the end, about 35, verse 35 and on, he talks about our resurrection body. When Christ comes back and judges the living and the dead and raises his saints up to a new resurrected body, Paul talks about this, and in 15, verse 44, Paul writes this, It is sown a natural body. It is raised a body, spiritual body. These are if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. These are two words that I never could have imagined someone would say, let's put those things together. Spiritual body. It's kids, if you remember last week, it's as Pastor David said, it is an oxy moron. They don't seem to go together. But this is the truth of Christianity, that God, who is spirit, will dwell with his physical creatures. 
Revelation 21 summarizes it. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. God will dwell with us and he himself will be our light. He will be our temple. All of this is seen in the resurrected, glorified flesh of Jesus Christ in whom the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. Our elder brother, Jesus, resurrected to a glorious body, completely able to handle the weight of glory. And God, or his body, stands as both a covenant and a promise that we too are being prepared to be able to stand in the presence of God and his fullness of his glory. That even that which leaves us feeling empty is being used to shape and mold us so that we can carry the weight of glory on our shoulders. But amazingly enough, seeing the empty tomb and seeing a glimpse of the glorious and resurrected Christ is not actually the greatest grounding and foundation of our faith, according to John in this text. Our final point is this from John. We need to ground our faith in the Christ of the scriptures. Ground our faith in the Christ of the of the scriptures. So this is coming from verses 9 through 10. John writes this. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. End quote. So we're going to do two things with our final point. We're going to explain verse 9 and then we're literally going to practice verse 9. So that's the two things that we're going to do. So let's look at verse 9. Verse 9 is a pastoral correction from the Apostle John. He's correcting what some of us have maybe thought and what maybe some of us are even thinking currently. But maybe at some point, some point in the past, we've thought this. If only I could have seen the empty tomb, the evidence of the linen cloth lied around, the face cloth rolled up. If only I could have seen something of the glory of his resurrected body, then I would have a vibrant, living faith. If only I could just touch him like Thomas, right? Touch his wounds and see for myself. I would shake off the emptiness and hopelessness that I find in myself and in the world. And John's pastoral heart will not allow us to think this. In verse 9, he gives a corrective by using the word for, in which we ask, What's the four there for, right? Like, what, what's this four pointing to? It connects us back to verse eight, but it's a very awkward connection. I don't know if you find it awkward. Read verse eight and then go right into verse nine. Verse eight says this, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. He saw and believed, I expect, he saw and believed for, and you might like substitute something, right? That he saw and believed for, he caught a glimpse of this, evidence of Jesus's glorious body. And that's why he believed. But instead, he did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. It's as if verse 8's faith is being viewed as a kind of cheaper kind of faith. Not a dead faith, but a cheaper faith. I saw the empty tomb, John might be saying, and even later saw the resurrected Lord. These things brought to me faith but only because I didn't understand the Bible. Do you hear kind of the radicalness of that statement? I saw an empty tomb, physical evidence. I saw, later on, saw the actual resurrected Lord himself. All this brought me faith because I just didn't understand the Bible. 
that's crazy. We see something later by the old man Peter, right? He, he tells us something very similar that John tells us here. In 2 Peter 1, 16-21, he states something along the lines of the prophetic word, a.k.a. scripture, the Bible speaking of Christ, is more fully confirmed than what? Than Peter's witness of Jesus' transfiguration in Matthew 17. I saw his skin shine light like the sun. It blinded me. But we have a word more fully confirmed in the prophetic word, which is scripture. That's what Peter writes. Scripture is a surer ground for faith than a glimpse of Jesus' resurrected body, a glimpse of all the physical evidence in the world that we could come up and say. Martin Luther says this a little bit, he says it a little bit farther than I would say it, but sometimes we need to hear it more radically on one side to overcorrect us from the other side of maybe apathy towards the scriptures. Martin Luther says it this way, the disciples were so entirely unable to believe that the Lord had risen from the dead because they did not yet know the scripture. Therefore, the external word out of all of Christ's works is always the most powerful testimony. So long as the disciples are without the word, they're unable to believe that Christ has risen from the dead. That's where I would nuance it. They're unable to believe as much as they could have believed. That's how I would edit that. But when they receive the word and Christ expounds the scripture to them and opens their understanding, they believe. Luke 24, Road to Emmaus. And even if three angel Gabriels had come to testify to them, they would not have believed such testimony as firmly and as strongly as they believe the word and scripture. That is why there is no more certain assurance for our consciences than the external physical word. We would not be converted by any testimony, either friend or foe, nor be moved by it if Christ's voice itself did not follow. That is to say, holy scripture, which is the best and strongest testimony. Again, maybe a little too strong, but he's getting at what John here is saying. One wonders that if what John and Peter and Martin Luther is saying here is true, if, if what they're saying is true, why can't we seem to find time to read the Bible, much less study it like our life depended on it? I'm including me in the we. To read it for all it's worth, to desperately seek Christ upon the pages of divine testimony. Hear me out on this. Your faith can be found in the evidence of the F, can only be safely grounded and founded in the Christ of the scriptures. Read the Bible searching for Christ. We must read the Bible searching for Christ until he is sweet to us. We must read our emptiness away by finding strong testimonies of our sympathetic and compassionate and gracious and merciful and loving Jesus. Read in faith knowing that it is the scriptures who bear witness to Jesus. John 5 verse 39. We need to not harden our hearts to the easiest place to hear the good shepherd's voice. And that's scripture. So listen closely. So here's some ways that we can, we can uh, rely heavily upon scripture. Listen closely to the sermons on Sunday. 
When we do corporate readings on Sunday, read out the scriptures with great interest. Come to Sunday school class, 9 a.m., where we get to hear about Christ systematically and biblically. It alternates. Ask an individual or two in the church to read scripture with you throughout the week. Like meet with groups as a means to encourage and exhort one another to read scripture and to study and to press into it. Corporately, get onto the year Bible reading plan, right? And press into it and ask someone to, to hold you accountable. Now, I want to give two cautions with this. Christ makes you righteous, not your Bible reading, right? Jesus' righteousness is what makes you righteous, not your work or effort to follow Jesus. A second kind of corrective is we're not reading the Bible so that we know about the Bible. We're reading the Bible to find Christ. The Bible points us to Jesus, and so we have to read the Bible like Jesus. Another way of saying that, I, I, I kind of went back and forth for whether or not to use a, a kind of analogy here, but I'm going to do it. All right? We like audiobooks. It's gotten really bad, audiobooks, because it, it's gotten to the point now like where people are like, who's your favorite reader of Harry Potter? Because there's multiple audiobook versions, and there's some that are better than others, and so now we're like literally stacking up our readers. If the Bible was an audiobook, the reader that we want is the voice of Christ. Christ reads the scriptures to us and shows us all the roads that lead back to him, as Spurgeon would say. So now the second thing that I want us to do, the last thing for this point, I want us to practice it. Because John makes a statement here that the scriptures testify that Jesus, and it's very strong, must rise from the dead. So we might be asking, well, I've read the Old Testament. Where's that at? I don't recall it saying anything about Jesus' resurrection. And I would respond, hopefully like, uh, again, in light of Spurgeon, I'll respond like Spurgeon would respond. Where do we see the resurrection of Christ? Everywhere. Everywhere. You're not going to go many pages in the Bible without stumbling upon Christ and particularly his resurrection. And so being kind of hermeneutically responsible, keeping with good biblical interpretation, I'm going to give a couple of examples of the resurrection from the Old Testament. We'll confine ourselves to a few. The first one is page one of the Bible. Now, you might say it's a stretch, but I'm going to say it anyways because I don't think it's a stretch. Day one of creation. Guess what day one is? Day one is Sunday. Nothing. Life. Light. We see the resurrection of the very first thing God does, the very first thing God speaks. Day three, we're not going far from that. What happens in day three? Land rises out of water, right? Land. Now, you might be like, oh, that's a little bit of a weird way of saying that that's the resurrection of Christ. Oftentimes in Scripture, really starting in Genesis, going all the way through Revelation, sea represents evil, it represents darkness, it represents a place of death. Land is rising out of death. You don't believe me? Go to Genesis 6. What does God do? He uncreates the world by causing the land to go back down into the sea and thereby all the world to die with it. And then what does he do again? He causes the water then to come down and the land to come back up. And then once again, we have a new Adam, a new story, new life, right? So let's take that phrase third day. Right, we saw it in the third day of creation. The next time the phrase third day is used in the Bible is 
Abraham hides a ram in his place, and his son doesn't die that day. And Hebrews 11.19 says, 11, says this of Abraham in that day. He considered that God was able even to raise him, his son, from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. How about the scripture's fifth use of the phrase third day? Also in Genesis. On this third day, the Egyptian Pharaoh's chief baker was beheaded and hung on a tree. And Pharaoh's chief cupbearer was released from prison and restored back to his office and was returned, his life was returned to him basically. And so fifth use of the third day, we quite literally have a man dying on a tree and another man being restored to all of his fortunes. That's convenient. Um, he, right, died upon a tree and that other man was resurrected as Hebrews might say, figuratively speaking. How about Psalm 1610 where David prophesies of Jesus' resurrection. He says this, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Or how about Hosea 6.2's prophecy concerning Israel, whom Jesus represents and fulfills in many ways all throughout Scripture. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. It was on the third day that the Lord came into the sight of all of his people on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. It's on the third day that the resurrected Lord comes into the sight of his people and his new covenant people in the New Testament. Joshua, in the book of Joshua, hung five defeated kings on trees, and then he took their bodies and threw them into caves and rolled a stone over the mouth of the cave. That sounds eerily familiar. Something we've heard before, I think. This is John, uh, Joshua 10, 26-27. And finally, but not completely, how could we forget about Jonah? You know, that's the guy, you know, slapping people with fish. That's the VeggieTales version. But in Jonah, he gets swallowed up by the great fish, right? And in Jonah 2, he writes a psalm. He, he says a prayer and he records a very poetical prayer in the belly of death. And know that this prayer is about Christ. Yes, it's about Jonah. It's also about Christ. I'm going to read it to you. I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol, death. I cried and you heard my voice for you had cast me into the deep, into the hearts of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and billows passed over me. And then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again, a little bit of hope, upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. He's starting to get to the bottom. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed to you I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Amen. Jonah's prayer, resurrection of Christ. I want you to feed that hope and glimpses of the glorified Jesus, but I want you to found your hope 
in the scriptures testimonies concerning this Jesus. And I'll leave you with the blessed words of Christ himself from scripture. He says this in John 20, 29. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. End quote. The faith rooted and founded in the unseen is a blessed faith, according to Jesus. If you haven't believed upon Christ, hear what the scriptures say about Christ. He died for the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, and on the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. Believe on him, and we'll practice this even though it's not Easter. He is risen. Let's pray. Um, Father, again, um, in weakness, I proclaim the gospel, the person of Jesus. I ask that you would show up in power, that you would, that the shepherd's voice would accompany the words of scripture, that he would speak to our hearts, that we would hear him, that we would know the truthfulness of his death and his resurrection because it's rooted in your sovereign power, that you had a plan before the world began, that you, before the foundation of the world, knew Christ would become a man and die on behalf of pitiful sinners and extend your mercy and love to us. Lord, strengthen our faith. Yes, let us be encouraged by the evidence that we hear Yes, let us be encouraged by those sweet times when Jesus appears to our souls. But Lord, let us have a firm foundation. Let, us, let all that just be expected because of what you've already told us in Scripture. That Christ has been fully and perfectly and wholly proclaimed to us by you yourself in the testimonies of Scripture. Help us to be lovers of the word. Help us to bleed the word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to go ahead and